Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. How many of y'all saw The Matrix? You know, that movie is a perfect illustration of what we've been talking about in the book of Galatians. Because at that point in the movie, Neo realizes that everybody's been under control by the matrix. And they think they're living their lives, but they're really in slavery and bondage. And at that moment, Morpheus gives him the opportunity to make a choice. Do you want to stay in slavery and bondage even though you don't realize that's what's going on? Or do you want to get out of that? And he basically is saying, the choice is yours. And that's exactly the choice that Paul has been presenting to the Galatians here in the book of Galatia. He has been presenting this choice to them. He's been saying, you know, I came into that area of Galatia and I started all these churches. I led people to Christ. I set them free from their sin and their bondage. Because, you know, the Bible says before we accept Christ, we're in slavery and bondage to our sin. And they were set free by the power of the gospel and their faith in Jesus Christ. But then after he left, these Judaizers came in and they said, you know what, to really uh, have a right relationship with God, you have to not only accept Jesus, but you have to add some other things to it. Some works, some law, some surgery for the men and, and those things. And so what they thought was helping their relationship with God was really hindering their relationship with God. And Paul is writing this letter back in the book of Galatians to say the choice is yours. Do you want to go back? into bondage and slavery or do you want to live in the freedom of your relationship with Christ and that's the title of our message today the choice is yours have you ever made a choice a decision to do something for a relationship maybe with your kids or your spouse or maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend you know our family you made a choice to do something that you thought would be helpful to the relationship but you found out it wasn't so helpful if you ever been there say yes 
You, you know, and, and that's what was going on here. Paul is saying, you know, these Judaizers are telling you that if you go back to the law and, and works and all these things, it's going to help your relationship with God, but really it's going to do just the opposite. I, I recently made a, a choice uh, to do something for my marriage relationship for Shelly and I, and I really felt good about what the choice I had made and what I was doing. I was really excited about it, and I, I know I told you guys in the Vow series, we we're getting really close to, to Valentine's Day, and I've never been really big on celebrating celebrating Valentine's Day because I always feel like it's expected. I'd rather do something nice on a different day when it's not expected. And so Shelly and I usually don't really celebrate Valentine's Day on Valentine's night. We'll go, you know, maybe the weekend before, weekend after. But this year I decided, you know, maybe I would do something different because my wife is a big Carrie Underwood fan. She loves Carrie Underwood and, and I kind of do too, but I probably shouldn't admit that. And so, you know, we like Carrie Underwood. We watched her on American Idol and we followed her career. And so I noticed that Carrie Underwood was coming in concert to Denver on Valentine's night and I was like wouldn't that be awesome if I surprised her and I got tickets to Carrie Underwood on Valentine's night well by the time I found this out and I checked on tickets it was already sold out I mean your concert sold out in like you know 20 minutes and and several weeks had gone by and so it was there were no tickets available and I thought well I'll get on StubHub so I got on StubHub and you know I bought Rocky's tickets and other things there and so I found a couple of tickets I mean I, I looked for three weeks because they wanted like four times you know the amount that they originally cost but I'm like it's it's for my wife it's Valentine's she knew nothing about it I was gonna surprise her so Make a long story short, I finally found a couple of tickets, and these were like 10th row in the center, and they were, you know, they were a little cheaper than some of the others, and so I, I bought the tickets, and I didn't tell her, and I just said, well, what, you know, hey, are we going to do anything tonight? And I said, well, I thought maybe we'd just, you know, maybe go to the mall. You know, we still had some Christmas money. Let's, let's just go shopping and maybe just grab a bite at Red Robin or something like that. She's like, yeah, that sounds good. So we went to Red Robin, and I had the tickets in my pocket. And I said, well, hang on a second. I need to go to the restroom. So I got up, and I went to our waitress, and I said, hey, my wife doesn't know, but I'm taking her to Carrie Underwood right after we eat dinner, and she doesn't know it. So will you bring these tickets to our table and tell her that you have these couple extra tickets if we'd like to go to Carrie Underwood? I mean, I was like, I am so smooth. This is so good. I've made up for every balance. Valentine's Day that I missed for the last 20 years, you know, and I'm set for the next one. I was so excited, this choice I had made. And so she brings the tickets, and, you know, she realizes that I got them, and she, she's crying. She's crying. You know, it was like, yes! You know you've scored when you get tears, you know, and I'm like, yes, this is great! And so we're so excited, and so you know me, I, I like to get places early. I don't like to be late, and so we were kind of excited, so we got there like an hour early, which was a really good thing. And now I'm thinking, this is so great for our marriage. It's so great for our relationship. I mean, I have, I have hit a home run on this one. We get to the gate. We give them our tickets. And to our horror, they say, these tickets are not valid. Yeah. These tickets, uh, there's probably just a mix-up. Just go over here to the box office. We'll get it straightened out. And I've used StubHub before, and I've never had any problems, and they stand behind stuff. And so I go over there, and they're like, well, you know, you didn't buy these from us. You bought them a third party from StubHub, blah, blah, blah. Make a long story short, an hour and a half later, we're still not in the concert. Now, thankfully, Carrie Underwood hadn't come on yet. They had some no-name, you know, it went first. And so that kind of bought us some time. And I'm standing, and that night it was like 20 degrees out, and I couldn't get cell service inside. So I'm outside for an hour and a half on the phone. Shelly's inside, and I'm trying to work this out. And 
The guy that I bought them from bought them from another guy, and that guy was the one that kind of did a little switcheroo, and so StubHub was going to have to go back after him. And so what I thought was a great choice for our relationship really ended up not being so great. Now, thank God, StubHub had a guy there. He said, I can't get you those seats, but here's a couple more tickets. Gave them to us free. We did get to see the concert. But it was, yeah, it was not good for a while. I had made a choice that I thought was going to be great for our relationship, but it wasn't turning out as great as I hoped. And I, did, I think it did help me a little bit because Shelly felt, you know, really bad for me. So I got a lot of sympathy out of it. So that was, that was kind of helpful. And, and, and that's what's going on here. Paul, Paul is telling these Galatians, listen, what the Judaizers are telling you to have a better relationship with God to, to keep the law and do works and have surgery and all these things and be religious again, that is not a good choice. That is not going to help your relationship. You may think it's going to help, but it's actually going to hurt and hinder your relationship with Jesus. And the same is true today. Whenever we try to do things to please God through performance and, and religion and works or trying to keep law, that doesn't help our relationship with Jesus. It actually can hinder it. And in this chapter, we're in chapter 4. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 4. It's on page 471 if you're using one of the Bibles you picked up when you came in this morning. And we're looking at chapter 4 today as we continue verse by verse through this book. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul masterfully presents three pictures to, to let us know and the Galatians know, you have a choice in how you relate to God. You know, do you want it to be about law or do you want it to be about grace? Do you want it to be about legalism or liberty? Do you want it to be about bondage or freedom? He's saying the choice is yours and he paints three pictures to contrast the difference between law and grace and liberty and legalism. And he says, the choice is yours. How do you want to relate to God? And this is going to be so practical and freeing for so many of us today. And so let's look at the very first picture that Paul gives us. And the first picture that he paints, the choice that we have to make is, do you want to relate to God like a slave or a son? Do you want your relationship with God to be like a slave or to be like a son? Chapter 4, verse 1, we'll pick it up here. Paul says, now I say, and he gives an illustration, that the heir... As long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. He's saying, you know, even if a child, you know, is heir to, the, you know, the possessions of the father, of the inheritance, as long as they're a child, they're a minor, they really don't get to enjoy that stuff any more than the slaves do. That's what he's saying. And then verse 3 says, even so we, as Christians, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, under that bondage and slavery. That we might receive the adoption as what, church? As sons, as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Paul is contrasting how we relate to God. And he's saying, do you want to relate to God like a slave? That's what you were under the law in bondage. Or do you want to relate to God as a son being brought into God's family by his love, mercy, and grace? Which do you want? Do you want to be a slave or do you want to be a son? 
And, and Paul is like, you were made sons of God by faith in Jesus. But now you're acting like slaves again because you're buying into this false teaching of the Judaizers. Let me illustrate it like this. Um, you know, one of our favorite restaurants to eat is, and, and unfortunately it's not open on Sunday, so you know which one I'm talking about, Chick-fil-A. How many of y'all love Chick-fil-A? You know, you know, greatest chicken sandwich human hands have ever made, especially the spicy chicken. Number four with provolone. Okay, that's my meal. <laughs> How many of you have, have ever worked at Chick-fil-A? Anybody ever worked at Chick-fil-A? Any, nobody? Okay. Well, today I'm gonna, I want you to act like you work for Chick-fil-A for a moment, okay? So you're all employees of Chick-fil-A. Just get this in your mind. And, and you're now an employee of Chick-fil-A. You got the little Chick-fil-A apron. You got the little name tag that says new guy or new girl. You know, you always love that. You walk up and it says that. You know, and, and you're an employee. And so you're, you're making the chicken sandwiches and the waffle fries. And you're getting drinks and you're giving those out. And you're doing the best job that you can. And, you know, you want to perform well at your job so that maybe you'll get a raise and you might get a promotion and you're, you're trying to be the best Chick-fil-A employee that you can and you know of course the first thing you have to learn when you're an employee of Chick-fil-A is when somebody says thank you you say my pleasure see you're all qualified you say my pleasure I just one time I want to ask them is it really is it really your pleasure to be, I'm just just curious and so, yeah, they probably do say yes. They're probably trained that way. And so you're a Chick-fil-A employee, so you're doing this. Now, let's say one day you're working away at Chick-fil-A, and let's say you're, you know, you're only like 17. This is like your first job. And you're working away, and you're doing your thing, and you're performing well. You know, everybody's giving you attaboys. And this older gentleman walks into Chick-fil-A, and he kind of just stands to the side of the counter, and he begins to watch what everybody's doing. And he begins to really watch you, and you see that he's watching you, and you're like, okay, is this guy going to order? What's he going to do? Hey, can I get your order? Can I, help, can I help you? No, I'm okay. And he just watches you for a little bit. And then finally, he walks behind the counter, and he goes, can I see you for a minute? I would like to just talk to you. And, and you're like looking at the manager, and the manager's like, it's okay. Yeah, go ahead. And so this older gentleman takes you. He says, let's, let's go sit down back in this corner just by ourselves. And you sit down across the table from this older gentleman, and he says, you do you know who I am? And you say, no, I, I don't know who you are, sir. And they said, well, you don't, may not know me, but, but I know you. I've been following you for the last couple of years since you got this job at Chick-fil-A. I, I know your story. I know that you are an orphan. I know that you lost your mom and dad at a young age, and you've been from foster home to foster home. And you may not know who I am, but let me introduce myself. I'm Truett Cathy. I, I'm the owner of Chick-fil-A, of the whole corporation. And I know you've been working here as an employee, but I want to adopt you as my child. I want you to be my son, or I want you to be my daughter. Now, you can continue to work for Chick-fil-A. We love that. That's great. You know, this is our company. But I just want you to know that I'm going to adopt you as my child, and all of this is going to be yours one day. You're going to be an heir to the Chick-fil-A, you know, franchise and enterprise and everything that I have. Now, if you know anything about Chick-fil-A, you're like, yes, scored big. And so you go back to work. Now, let me, let me ask you this. If you go back to work then and, and, and your job at Chick-fil-A, what used to be based upon performance is now going to be based upon something different. It's not so much about your performance. It's about the fact that you are an heir to the Chick-fil-A you know, franchise, to the whole thing. Do you think it might change your view of your job that you have at Chick-fil-A? I'm no longer an employee. I'm no longer trying to perform. I am now an heir to everything that Chick-fil-A is. Do you think you might have a different approach to what you do and how you do it? 
Because before it was all about performance, but now it's about being an heir to everything Chick-fil-A is. You see, that's a great illustration of what Paul is saying, what happened to us when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Before Christ, we were slaves, we were in bondage, and, and, and most people, before they come to Christ, it's about performance. You know, I'm gonna perform enough to try to please God and to get ahead. That's what was going on with the Galatians. You know, before Christ, they were, they were trying to perform, they were trying to you know, keep the law, and that's what Judaizers were saying. The Jews, you know, before Christ, they, they were trying to perform for God, trying to keep the 613 laws, but Paul says, now it's not about performance. You're now a son. You're now an heir. You see, a slave is rewarded based upon performance, but a son is rewarded based on relationship. What would you, how would you rather relate with God? As a slave based on performance or as a son based upon relationship? Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. He's talking about that bondage of the law and the performance before faith in Christ. And he talks about the religious elements of the world. It's, it's basically trying to please God through our performance, through our rules, trying to get ahead by the things we do. And, and let me give you some of the characteristics of the religious elements of the world and what they sound like. They say things like this, I've got to do more. I've got to do more if I'm going to please God. I've got to pray more. I've got to read my Bible more. You know, I, I've got to serve more. I've got to go to church more. I've got to give more. I've got to do more and more and more if I'm going to please God. Here's another thing that the religious elements of the world say. The difference between religion and relationship, slave and son. I have to do this. If I'm going to be right in God's eyes and please God, I have to do this. I have to dress this way. I have to listen to this kind of music. I have to cut my hair this way. I have to do this. I have to do that. You know, that's what was going on. Remember with the Judaizers, with those in Galatia? They came in and they said, listen, we're glad you accepted Christ, but you have to be circumcised, men. If you're going to be right with God, you also have to be circumcised. You've got to become a Jew. You've got to keep the law. Reminds me of a story of a, a kid. He was uh, about to be 12 years old, and he was talking to his other friend, and he said, uh, yeah, I'm getting ready to be 12, and my parents just informed me that now that I'm 12, I have to be circumcised. And, he's like, and, then, and his other friend's like, yo, my gosh, you're kidding. He's like, no. He's like, I'm really scared about that. I'm really worried about that. And he's like, well, you should be. He said, my parents circumcised me when I was eight days old, and I couldn't walk for a year. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. <clears throat> but, but the religious elements of the world, they, they say, I've got to do this, I have to do this, and I can't do that. That's the third one you have in your notes. I can't do that. If I'm going to please God, I can't do that. I can't listen to that kind of music. I can't, go to, I can't watch that show. I can't go to that movie. I can't have that version of the Bible. I can't have a tattoo. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, is what the religious elements of the world say, rules and regulation. You see, religion is all about rules instead of relationship. It's about being a slave instead of a son. Look at verse 5, what Paul said. What, what, what God did for us to get us out of our bondage and slavery. It says in verse 5, he sent Jesus to, what's the next word? To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He wanted us to go from being a slave to being a son, and he did that through redemption. That's a, a, a Christian Bible word you hear a lot, redemption, redeeming, redeem. The word redeem comes from the a Greek word, exagorazo, and it means this, to ransom, 
to pay a ransom to free somebody or to purchase to set free. You see, in the Roman Empire, there were, they say there was probably some 60 million slaves. And, and Romans that had enough money could purchase a slave for one of two reasons. They could purchase a slave so that they could be their slave and their servant in their household, or they could purchase a slave to set them free, to redeem them. That's what Christ did for us, church. He purchased us with his blood on the cross to set us free from our bondage of our sin and the slavery that we were in. Are you thankful for that this morning? I mean, we just sang about that in the last song. Our chains are broken. We've been set free. And that's what Paul is saying. You, you, you guys were set free. Why are you letting the Judaizers take you back into slavery? Back into bondage of rules and regulations and religion. And notice what he says in verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Abba. Everybody say Abba. The word Abba is an Aramaic word, and it's, the, it's as close a word as you can get to our word daddy, to daddy or papa. That God, it doesn't just want to be our creator, he is our daddy. He's our father, he's our papa. We've been adopted into his family. We are no longer slaves. We are sons. And Paul says in verse 6 and 7, quit acting like slaves and act like the sons and daughters of God that you are. And this happens to us today. This is why the book of Galatians is so popular. So many people accept Christ. They're set free from their sin and their bondage. But then they still have this view of God that God is like on a throne up in heaven and he's always asking us these questions like, did you read your Bible today? How much of the Bible did you read? What chapter did you read? How long did you read? How much did you read? What version did you read from? Did you pray today? How long did you pray? Did you pray once? Did you pray twice? Did you pray for every meal? Did you pray before bed? Did you go to church this week? Did you serve a church this week? You know, when you were there, did you do this? You know, did you give? How much did you give? Did you give enough? Did you witness? Have you shared your faith? How many people have you shared your faith with? How many people have you led to Christ? I want to know. I'm writing it down. I'm keeping track. That's our view of God. And, and, and that is not the right view of our father, our daddy. God, listen, church, this, this statement right here can set some of you free. God is not our supervisor demanding performance from us. He is our daddy who wants a relationship with his children. That's what he wants. And everything we do in the Christian life ought to be because we are sons, because of that relationship. And, and, and again, are we saying that means you can become a Christian and become a son and then just live your life however you want? You can, but why would you want to? Why would you want to when you're, you, the God of this universe has become your daddy? You become an heir to everything that he has. It's just like Chick-fil-A. You would want to continue to work there, but you would have a different attitude. You'd have a different heart. You'd have a different mindset. So now when you read your Bible and you pray, is it isn't so that you can get off of a, a checklist with God. You know, check, did that, check, did that. You read your Bible and you pray because you know, that's how I get to communicate with my dad. That's how my daddy talks to me. That's how I get to know him better. That's how I get to spend time with him. And, and, and when I pray, that's how I talk to him and I share what's going on in my life, my hurts, my habits, my hang-ups, my requests, my praise. And, and, and I want to communicate with him and I want to spend time with him. And, and you know, I go to church not because God says, you better go to church, you're going to be right with me. No, I go to church because I, I know that I'm not in this Christian life alone. 
God didn't want any Lone Ranger Christians. I go to church because there's people who care about me. There's people that love me, and I love them, and I want to be there. I want to be with God's family. I want to be with my other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not something I have to do. It's something I want to do. It's something we get to do. I serve in the church because people in a family serve, and they help each other, and and they want to see other people help. You know, why do we give? I give because of the one who gave it all for me. The one who owns it all anyway. I, I'm, listen, I'm just a manager. I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. It all belongs to God. It's not my house. It's not my car. It's not my money. It's not my job. It's not my family. It's God's. And I just had the privilege to be entrusted with it. And I want to give it back to him. And I want to use it for him. And you know what? I share my faith not because God's going to say when I get to heaven. Now, how many people did you really lead to Christ? You know, we're going to we're keep a track up here. No, I share my faith because I want other people to know my daddy. I want other people to know the God I know. I want other people to experience the Jesus that I experience. I disciple people not because my church tells me you should disciple to be right with God. I do it because there's other people that need Christ. There's other need people that need help growing in the relationship. You see, it's all about attitude, the difference between slaves and sons. Let me give you some real quick on your paper just to help you out, just some rapid fire ones. The difference between slaves and sons. The slave is driven by duty, performance and obligation, but the son is driven by devotion out of love and relationship. The slave obeys out of fear. The son obeys out of love. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not because of rules and regulation and religion, but because you love Jesus. The slave is poor. The son is rich. Rich in the mercy and the grace and the faith that God has given us. The slave is, has a master. The son has a father. And Paul says the choice is yours. Which would you rather be, a slave or a son? Now, you guys have a graph on your outline. Slave on one side, son on the other. And I'm going to ask you very practically right now to be completely honest. Don't share this with anybody. But I want you to put a mark on that graph. How do you find yourself most relating to God? More over on the slave side or more toward the son side? And if you're somewhere in the middle or more toward the slave side, pray and ask God to help you to change your view of your relationship with God. That you would relate to him as a son and a child of God, not as a slave. Here's the second illustration that Paul gives. He says, not only do you want to relate to God as a slave or a son, but do you want to relate to God through rules or relationship? Do you want your relationship with God to be about rules or relationship? Look at verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. He's talking about the Galatians before Christ. They served all these false pagan gods and idols. They were in slavery. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, that's even more important, how is it that you turn again, go back to the weak and beggarly elements of rules and regulations and religion, to which you desire again to be in bondage? He goes, you guys have been set free. Now you want to go back into slavery and bondage? You observe days and months and season and years. You know, that's all part of the law and the festivals. I am afraid for you, Paul says, lest I have labored for you in vain and wasted my time giving you the gospel. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. But they were injuring themselves. Paul is saying, you Galatians want rules so you can keep a scorecard with God. 
You know, you, you want a scorecard because we, we like to know where we stand. You know, we want to know where we stand, so we're going to get a score. It's kind of like a, a golf scorecard. You know, you go golfing, they give you a scorecard, and each hole, you know, you put what you got on that hole, and if you're honest, you'll put the right thing, you know, and you got to watch your buddies sometimes, and those mulligans, and so you, you keep a score. So at the end, you, you've got your scorecard, who won, who lost, and that's how some people approach the relationship with God, like it's a scorecard. Like God's got this scorecard up in heaven, you know, and when you keep a law, five points on your scorecard. Keep a holy day, a festival, 15 points on your scorecard. You get Bubba circumcised, 100 points on your scorecard. You know, that's a, that's a bonus one right there. And look at what Paul says in verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You know what he's saying? Remember, Paul, before he accepted Christ, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most religious guy around. It was all about keeping the law. It was all about religion. And he said, I've been down that religious rules road, Paul says. I've, I used to keep a scorecard, and that doesn't work. That is not what a relationship with Jesus is all about. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship with God. And then Paul turns to his relationship that he had with the people in Galatia while he was there. And he describes that relationship in, in verse 13. And he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, we, we, we know throughout the scriptures that Paul had some kind of physical ailment. Nobody knows for sure what it was. Uh, many people, and I happen to be one of them, believe it had to do something with his eyes. And this passage is one reason, as you'll see, why I think it had to do with his eyes. And uh, he says, uh, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, his physical infirmity, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. He's, he's saying, you know, why did you guys receive me? It was because of our relationship that we had. Verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That gives us, I think, right there a clue that there was probably some kind of physical ailment with Paul's eyes. Have I therefore, verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? <laughs> I mean, has Paul been telling them the truth in these four chapters? I mean, he's been laying it out there. The Bible says speak the truth in love. And I mean, he's trying to do the best he can, but he has been letting them have it. And he says, uh, have I therefore become your enemy now because I tell you the truth? They, and the they here would be who? Say it. Judaizers, the false teachers. They, the false teachers, zealously court you. They try to persuade you. But for no good. There's not good intentions behind it. Yes, they want to be, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous at a good thing always, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. Not the law, not religion, Christ. He says it's about your relationship with Christ. Paul had introduced them to a personal relationship with Jesus. But now the Judaizers wanted it to be about keeping rules, keeping a scorecard. Th think of it this way. <clears throat> Shelly and I just, I told you guys a couple times this last Christmas, we celebrated 20 years of marriage. And we've had an incredible relationship. I mean, there's been so much love and caring and, and, and fulfillment in life. And we've had 20 years. Can you imagine if on our 20th anniversary we would have gone out to dinner and I would have said something like this. You know, we've had 20 wonderful years in our relationship and our marriage and love and caring. 
But you know, I think we should change it up for the next 20 years. Change it up a little bit. And so I think what we should do is we should set some rules and some boundaries for the next 20 years. And I think we should have a scorecard and we should award points so that we kind of always know where we stand in our relationship. That way we kind of always know, you know who's ahead or who's behind and who needs to work on what. And you know, like when you make dinner, I'll give you five points. You know, when it's a really good dinner, which it always is with Shelly, that's 10 points. You know, when I vacuum, I get five points. When I vacuum in my boxers, I get 50 points. Some of y'all were here for the value, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, if I come home late, you know, from work, you know, from the office, and, and I don't tell you, yeah, it's a negative 10, you know. And if I come home and maybe you were really busy that day and the house isn't as clean as it usually is, that's a negative 10. And so instead of us having a date night, we'll just have a compare our scorecard night. And, and once a week, we'll just get together and we'll compare our scorecard and we'll look at our points and we'll know where we stand and we'll base our relationship on that for the next 20 years. Now, how do you think Shelly would respond to that kind of proposal? You want me to knock you out? If you have any thoughts of 20 more years, we're not doing that. Now, what's unfortunate is that's how some marriages operate. Oh, it's not a paper scorecard, but it's a mental scorecard. And it's about, well, you didn't do that, so I'm not doing this. Or I did this, so you did this. And it becomes about a scorecard. You show me a relationship, a marriage that's in trouble, I'll show you a marriage that it's about keeping a scorecard. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about when it comes to our relationship with Christ. He, he's trying to tell the Galatians, listen, it's not about rules and scorecards. It's about relationship. It's about our relationship. You think about how most of our relationships began with Jesus. It began with so much love and caring and freedom and fulfillment and joy. I mean, just go back for a moment. The day you accepted Christ and how you felt about Jesus. It was all about love and grace and mercy and freedom and joy and all those things. But unfortunately, people come to Christ that way and they're set free from their sins. And they enter this loving, incredible relationship with Jesus. But somebody comes along and starts taking them back to rules and regulations and religion. And you can always tell when people, when Christians are becoming religious and it's about rules and scorecards and slavery rather than relationship because they become bitter. They begin to lose their joy. They become very judgmental of other Christians and other people. They become very judgmental of the church. They become very critical and their face begins to look like this guy right here. This is a guy we follow on Twitter. This guy's you see his face there? He got the frown. His, he's called the Church Curmudgeon. And, and we follow him on Twitter. And he's always got these really funny tweets about church and, you know, church world. And you see that it moves from relationship to rules and scorecard. I, listen, I know this very well because I have a family member. Most, none of you have met. Most of you, none of you know I have a family member, a very close family member, that I've seen fall into exactly what we're talking about. Rules, regulations, religion. I mean, it, it, always coming out of their mouth, I can't do this, I can't do that, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. And they're one of the most unhappy, unsatisfied, unfulfilled, miserable, critical, judgmental people that I know. 
And it's sad because they've missed the relationship. But they think they're right with God because their scorecard looks pretty good. Here's what happens when we start keeping a scorecard. We want to compare our scorecard to other Christians' scorecard. And you know what that leads to, church? Pride. And that's the root of all sin, amen? It's not about our scorecard. If we're not careful and we get into rules and regulations instead of our relationship, you know, we'll even come to church and we'll be get, get critical and judgmental. I love what Gary um, I stole this state from him. He said, you know, we should come to church expecting, not inspecting. You can find out real quick if it's about your relationship with God or if it's about rules and religion and regulations and tradition by how you come to church. Do you come expecting to hear from God and worship God and that's what it's about? Or do you come inspecting? Well, I didn't like this and I didn't like that and man, I can't even find a parking place now and I can't get out of here and somebody's in my seat and the music's too loud and da 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 And it goes from rules and regulations away from relationship. And Paul's saying the choice is yours. How do you want to relate to God? Do you want, to be, do you want it to be about rules and a scorecard? Or do you want it to be about your relationship? Again, take an inventory. You have it in your notes. You make a mark. How do you most relate to God? Is it through rules or is it through your relationship? Paul says the choice is yours. Do you want to relate to God as a slave or a son? Rules or relationship? And then finally, one more real quick. Do you want to relate to God like it's a contract or a covenant? Do you want your relationship with God to be like it's a contract or a covenant? Picking it up in verse 20. Now I'm going to read verse 20 through 31 and then I'm going to sum this up. Paul says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have some doubts about you. Paul's really upset about what's going on. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you not know how hard it is to keep? For it is written, now watch this, he gives an illustration of, again, the most famous Jewish person where the whole nation began, Abraham. And he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, or a slave woman, the other by a, what kind of woman? A free woman. You see, he's making this correlation, slave or free. He says, but he who was of or born of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, what man could do. And he of the free woman through promise or covenant, which things are symbolic. He said, that's a great symbol and illustration about what we're talking about. For there are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. That was the, the first woman, the, the, the bond woman. And for this, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's where the law came from and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above in heaven is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the what, church? Of the free. Y'all got it, right? Some of y'all got it. Some of y'all like, okay, got a little lost. So let me, let me wrap this up 
in what, what I think we can understand. Paul uses a familiar Old Testament family to illustrate the difference between law and grace, bondage, freedom, legalism and liberty, slave and son, rules and regulation, contract and covenant. And he uses Abraham and Sarah. You can read the story in Genesis 16 to 21, or you can watch the Bible on the History Channel from last Sunday night. Because they showed this. <laughs> and you had Abraham and Sarah. Now, when, listen, when Abraham was 75 years old, God made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise. And he said, I'm going to bless you with children, and out of you is the nation of Israel is going to spring forth. And he was 75. Now, when he was 85, him and Sarah were still had no children, and Sarah's like, I am past childbearing years at 85. And Abraham was even older, you know, than her. She's like, we're no spring chickens anymore. And I know God said this, but we don't have any children. So they did what a lot of us do. They tried to help God out. We're going to help God out a little bit. And so and they got tired of waiting for the promise of God. And so Sarah says, I've got this slave. I've got this servant. Her name's Hagar. And she's really young. Abraham, why don't you have relations with her, and that will be your child. And that's probably what God meant. That's probably what he was talking about. See, she misunderstood the covenant and promise, and she thought it was a contract. She thought it was a contract, because in a contract, it's about two people each doing what they say they're going to do. You know, you do your part, and I'll do my part of the contract. And she thought, well, God made a contract, and God said he'd give us children, and so we got to do our part, and so we're going to do it through Hagar, and we're going to help God out. And she confused contract with covenant. At 99 years old, God reminds Abraham of the covenant, of the promise that he made that had nothing to do with Abraham. And you know why God waited till he was 99 and Sarah was in her 90s? So it would be a God thing. So it would be supernatural and miraculous and no man could take credit for it and know that it was of God. That's why God was waiting. He was waiting till there was no way humanly possible. And then at 100 years old, Sarah had a son and his name was Isaac. And God fulfilled his promise in his covenant in a miraculous way. You see, that's the difference between contract and covenant. A contract is about each person doing their part, and if they don't do their part, then you can break the contract. But a covenant is about somebody making a promise and a vow and agreement, and it doesn't matter what the other person does, they're going to keep their covenant. They're going to keep their promise. God did not offer us eternal life and a relationship with him based upon a contract. He did it based on a covenant. Isn't that beautiful? It's a covenant. It's a promise. God looked down and he said, I love you. I want you in my family. And there's nothing you can even do about it. It's everything that I have promised and I will do for you. Let, let me give you the quick contrast. You have them in your notes. The old contract was about the law. The new covenant is about grace. The old contract had to do with Hagar, the bondwoman. The new covenant was pictured in Sarah, the free woman. The old contract the child that was born, his name was Ishmael. He was conceived humanly. And for those of y'all that don't know the history, we're still dealing with Ishmael today. You can just check that out some other time. Isaac was born under the new covenant, conceived miraculously by the hand of God. The old contract was earthly. It put Jerusalem, the Jews, in bondage to law. The new covenant was about the heavenly Jerusalem in freedom. 
That's just a quick way to wrap that up. You see, our relationship with God is not based on a contract. It's based on a covenant. And I want you to take an inventory real quick. And then I want to give you a couple closing thoughts. Hang with me. Do you relate to God more like it's a contract, that if you do your part, God will do his part. If God does his part, you'll do your part. Some people like waiting for God. Well, I'll start serving God when he does something for me. Is it a contract or is it a a covenant? A covenant. You know, Job was a man that made a covenant with God. He said, though he slay me, I'm still going to trust him because it's about a covenant. Make sure you guys understand it's about a covenant when it comes to God and his relationship with us. It's the promise he made to send his son to die for us and we can have eternal life and freedom through him. All we have to do is accept it by grace through faith as a gift. Now, let me close with this. You're going to like this. Look at verse 30 and 31. Paul says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. That would be Hagar and Ishmael. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul is saying here, listen, and you saw this in, on the Bible, on the History Channel. They, they depicted this well. As soon as, as soon as Isaac came along, Sarah and Isaac did not get along with Hagar and Ishmael. They were like oil and water. They did not mix and to the point where Sarah and Abraham had Hagar and Ishmael leave. And remember, Hagar and Ishmael are a picture of the law. They're a picture of slavery. They're a picture of bondage. And this is what Paul is painting this beautiful picture for us again. Law and grace can't live together. You can't be a slave and a son. You can't have a covenant and a contract. You can't have rules and relationship. The choice is yours. Which one's it going to be? You think about the marriage covenant. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but when Shelly and I got married, we used the traditional vows. I I like the traditional vows. And I actually have a copy of the vows that we said. And here's what I said. You know, I I said, uh, I want you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, poorer in sickness and in health to love and to cherish till death do us part I pledge to you my faithfulness now does that sound like a contract or a covenant that's a covenant that's a promise that's a vow there's no you know excuses there's no you know clauses there's no prenups that's a vow and a covenant that was made that's the kind of covenant God made with us some of y'all and I'm gonna lose my man card here in just a second how many of y'all saw the movie The Vow? Okay, recently there was a movie called The Vow. Okay, and you know the the it's a chick flick. You know, and the girls are watching it and they're crying, ah, and I'm crying, ah, you know. And, and and what a lot of people don't know is the the movie The Vow. If we could put that picture up there, that the movie that came out recently called The Vow was a true uh, was based on a true story of a couple, and their name was Kim and Cricket. Kim was the man, Cricket was the the lady. And Kim was a baseball coach. He coached a very, at a small college in New Mexico. And whenever he would order his baseball supplies and equipment, he would call this company in California. And when he would call this company in California, there was this girl that became his rep and salesperson. Her name was Cricket. And he, he just really liked her voice. And she seemed so nice and sweet and pleasant. And I mean, and he, he kept 
calling and ordering more baseball equipment more frequently, you know, and he, he would always ask for, you know, cricket, and he wanted to talk to her. Make a long story short, they finally decided uh, to talk, you know, outside of work, and they began to talk on the phone, and they, and they built this relationship, and then they, they met each other in California, and they ended up uh, getting married. But before they got married, and this was not in the movie, they didn't, Hollywood didn't include this, unfortunately, but, but uh, cricket was a very devout Christian, and she said to Kim, she said, there's something you need to know. I'm a very devout Christian. I love God. I love Jesus with all my heart. And I've made a vow and a commitment to God that, you know, I'm only going to marry a Christian. And Kim said, so am I. I'm a Christian. And they started going to church together. And so as Christians, they got married and they stood at an altar and they made their vows to each other. And they made a covenant about their relationship. They made a promise. Just a few Months after they were married, they were going to a baseball game together. They were hit behind uh, by a truck. The car rolled off the embankment. There was a horrible accident, and Cricket was uh, severely injured. Her head was crushed. Uh, she had a severe brain injury. She was in a coma for a very long time. They didn't know if she would ever come out of it, if she would ever heal. She finally uh, came out of the coma and she had some of her long-term memory, but she did not have her short-term memory the last few years. She had no idea who Kim was, her husband. She had no idea that they had gotten married or any of that. She, and, and, and because her brain was injured, she was a different person. She wasn't as sweet. She wasn't as loving. As a matter of fact, she didn't like Kim, her husband. She didn't like, she said, who are you? Get out of my life. Get out of my room. You know, her, her whole personality had changed. And it would have been very easy for Kim to just walk away from that marriage and start all over again. But he had made a vow. He had made a covenant. He didn't enter into a contract. And he, over time, got to know her, she got to know him, and they were remarried. And they renewed their vows. They now have several children. You can see them on the screen they can, in this picture. And that is such a beautiful picture of the covenant relationship that God wants to have with us. It's about a covenant. It's about our relationship with God. It's not about performance. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not about religion. Listen, Romans 5, 8, you know what it says? But God showed his love to us when we were still sinners. He pursued us because he made a vow and a covenant to us because he loves us and he wants a relationship with us. He pursued us even when we tried to run from him, even when we tried to push him away, even when we said, God, I don't want to have anything to do. I don't want, he didn't stop because he made a covenant. And Paul says, the choice is yours. Do you want your relationship with God to be about a contract where you do your part and God will do his part and so on or do you want it to be about a covenant? Law or grace, the choice is yours. How do you want to relate to God? Slave or son, rules, or relationship, contract, or a loving covenant. Would you bow your heads this morning?